Welcome to the First Generation Glow Up Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Hodene. On this podcast, we'll be talking about our experiences overcoming the struggles as a first-generation East African growing up in the West, with lessons learned, curated discussions, and many laughs along the way. The glow up is real. Started from the bottom, now we are here. So in this episode, we will be having a candid conversation with my brothers about identity formation. So a slight humble brag, they are both well-adjusted, young, educated professionals who have navigated life as a first-generation successfully thus far. Liban and Amde, let's talk. What is the hardest part in, in walking the line between two cultures so far for you? And I would say, we, particularly, let's focus on your college years. What, we, what do you think was the hardest part of being Somali and being American at the same time? One of the hardest parts about being Somali and American for me was that there's a different life at home than there is outside the home. Sure. Um, this doesn't just start in college. It was, you know, this really actually started in elementary school. When, but when do you think it was the hardest, actually? Do you think it was hardest when you were in college, or do you think it was hardest when you were really young trying to formulate sort of who you are within this landscape? It was truly and utterly the hardest, I believe, in the later middle school years uh-huh. and the early high school years. Yeah. Because these are like the times where I think people get to know who they are. True. And they're really developing who they are. So like the early teen years, these are the times where a lot of kids and people that we know would, you know, try to go and, you know, try to just rebel. Yeah. And they would be rebelling and doing things that they, whatever that they wanted to do in order to rebel. But for me and other first generations, generation, whether it's Somali or any first generations, yeah. mm-hmm. we would think to ourselves, oh man, I, you know, I, I want to do what my friends are doing. And, but the only problem would be that we would have a set of rules that we would have to go by yeah. back home. So when everybody was saying, hey, we're, we're going to the bathroom right now some guy said they want to try to smoke a cigarette you know my as a first generation somali my mom found out about that she would she just, <laughs> she would just throw herself on the floor and start rolling around and screaming so for me i said whoa 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 that's that's something that i cannot do yeah that's so for me it's you know i could rebel other ways uh like for example like my mom would drop me off at the school bus and yeah. i would um pull out two rubber bands for my pocket and a dog chain so right when my mom drove off after driving me off dropped me off at the school bus um i would you would cuff I, your pants yeah i would cuff my pants put two rubber bands on my pants and <laughs> throw, throw the dog chain on just so i can you know be fly and just feel good yeah but my mom ever sees me with those dog chains and all that she'll say oh my god my son is has become americanized so i think it was really that that you know yeah yeah like just I feel like it's more so that that was kind of really tough because, you know, it's, there's kind of like constraints. It's like you're a caged bird in terms of how you can express hold yourself up, in those up. young years. So, so with that being said, you talked about this term of somebody being a caged bird. And oftentimes in that type of condition, people often want to be free. And freedom in a lot of people's minds means doing everything you're told not to do. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so... Do you think that as a first-generation American and having parents that grew up in a totally different culture, you really did feel like a cage bird, like growing up? Yeah, because it's you have to basically look at two different identities. So you're Somali and you're American. You have to look at both of these identities and try to make both of those identities happy, which is not easy. No. You know, it's not easy 
being an American and wanting to go to school and be like all the other Americans and do what everybody else is doing. But what happens is when that when that contradicts or goes against what it means for me to be Somali, then that's where the cognitive dissonance comes yeah. into play. And then that's when it's kind of like what I like to term as a mental war. So it's like you're a young kid in a mental war. Should I do this? Should I do that? Mm-hmm. And that's mentally taxing on somebody who's 12, 11, 13 years old. And luckily for me, you know, it was something where I was able to you know, go through that more so late middle school and high school. So by the time I was in college, I was kind of already deep-rooted in who I was. And you've already formed your identity as a Somali-American. Yes. Okay, so the same question is for you, Amde. Um, What do you think was the hardest thing between juggling two different cultures? And when do you think you actually went through the hardest part of that journey? That's a a great question, Doc. So, uh, you know, it definitely wasn't a putting any rubber bands on on my jeans or putting a dog tag on, you know. By the way, you're showing your age on that, man. <laughs> Keep that quiet, man. Keep that quiet. <laughs> Shout out to all of our, uh, you know, 90s, early 90s babies, late 80s babies. I see y'all. Yeah, but, you know, like, the hardest part for me, I don't know, because I, I felt like I never had, like, a strong urge to rebel or anything like that. I don't think I ever went through a phase where I was, like, really just trying to go purely to the American side. Like, growing up, in the middle school, high school years, I liked sports. Mm-hmm. Nothing really wrong with that. I liked... I mean, the only things that, that um, got in the way was who I was hanging out with. Mm-hmm. My folks didn't really like me hanging out with certain Americans because they thought they were going to be bad influences on me. If I was getting bad grades, they may not... They may think it's someone else's fault. If I was doing some wrong things, they may think it was somebody else's fault. Yeah. I mean... But in reality, maybe I was just curious, you know? Maybe I was just, it was on me. You know, a lot of times, first-generation parents, uh, they, they don't want to accept that maybe it's their kid who's, <laughs> maybe who's <they're> responsible. <laughs> <laughs> that their kid is the, the thought leader exactly. in actually doing these things, exactly. yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, I like shoes getting fresh, you yeah. know? So I hung out with some uh, people who may not have been the best interests at times. Yeah. People who like to get money through, um, you know, selling shoes and kicks and getting fresh and stuff like that i mean but maybe listening to some type of rap music and stuff but i I don't know it was never really i never really felt too much at odds but i know a lot of people have Mm -hmm. Um, so you're saying that your parents supported you buying expensive shoes and they supported you listening to rap music with a lot of curse words and stuff like for my folks they they well first of all i i definitely hid the rap music with curse words Okay. I definitely was not playing that anywhere in the house. Like maybe on my headphones, but that's it. Uh-huh. Um, when it comes to um, the other stuff, like playing ball or buying expensive stuff, and they just thought it was just a waste of time, a waste of money. But yeah. they didn't really. They weren't that strict. Um, so it was. I don't know. I didn't feel that much at odds. So, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, but yeah. That, that was basically how it was for me. Um, but but one thing I will say is, um, well, we'll get into that later. Yeah. 
Okay. I feel like so it's then a, I have another question, and I think this is a good one. You both are well adjusted, and that's really the reason why I, I put you onto this first episode. I really think that oftentimes you find that when there is an identity crisis, that people really go on this self destructive route where really it's not even about rebelling against their parents, it's not even rebelling against any other person. It's really a very self destructive mechanism that goes on within the person in which they are so torn about who they are that they just go on a rampage and that rampage can lead to alcoholism can lead to drug abuse can lead to all sorts of things that make people fall behind on you know in terms of with uh, their classmates or just with their culture in general right because your culture has a certain timeline associated with it there's things that you should be doing at a certain age right and that's another topic that we'll get to later on in the first gen in this discussion about first generation thought leaders it's like that timeline that was given to us, that parents say you should be doing this at this age and this at this age, is absolutely arbitrary when you are a first-generation person and you're also dealing with other timelines that this society imposes. So I have a question. What do you think was your sort of saving grace in terms of your awareness and consciousness of what's right and wrong when the environment is so opposite to what you feel at home? So what do you think helped guide you um, really on the straight path it, during those hard, hard years where you're trying to formulate your identity? I believe what helped me and guided me was having a good group of friends. Yeah. So I implore and urge any young person to understand that you are basically who your friends are. True. And me having a good group of friends like my brother Amde here and a lot of my other brothers, we stuck together and said, hey, let's do this together. The right Let's, way, right? Yes. Did you hold each other accountable throughout those years? It's, so it's, if somebody was falling off for mm-hmm. some reason, was there checks and balances within your group that you can reel the person back in and be like, you know what, this is not the right thing to be doing? It wasn't exactly. It wasn't exactly about. Yeah. Our friend culture was one that if you do something wild, like yo man, I'm about to be out here getting getting pilt, drinking, yeah. if you're out here smoking it, or or just I'm out here failing all my classes. It just wasn't accepted. So I think deep down at the end of the day, we would feel a sense of embarrassment uh, doing things like that um, in front of our friends or even doing that in general. Like, man, man, this is not me. Because like Hodan was saying the other day, you know, she feels and I feel, I'm pretty sure Lizan feels too, that uh, acceptance is the root of all of it. Yeah. Everybody wants to be accepted, especially at a young age. And like Lizan was saying, if your if your uh, friend groups stand for some some good values and morals you're going to be seeking acceptance yeah. from only good things absolutely but, and but affirmation you see, but the thing is it's not only conscience it's not only a conscious decision hey uh, let me hold you accountable because we're talking about years where you know our brains are still growing we're yeah. still kids yeah. it's more so just being around good people yeah. you don't get bad thoughts everybody has ideas of wanting to rebel and doing bad things yeah. but the the thing is if as a kid or as a teenager you're able to be around people who are really not doing that. The thing is, it just won't come to your mind as often. So if it was going to come to your mind a lot of times, like yeah. 60% of the time without it, you're around some good people. It may come to your mind 20% of the time. Mm-hmm. No 13-year-old is holding another 13-year-old accountable. Hey, did you make sure you attended all seven of your periods in the ninth grade? <laughs> yeah. No, it's more so my friend is going to all seven periods so as a ninth I, grader. So I should go. I should go, and we can hang out later. Yeah. We can go play basketball later. We can go to the rec center later. Yeah. So I have a question, though. Quick question. Um, you say it's really about picking a good group of friends. 
how does someone start the process of picking good friends? Let's say you grew up in the hood, yeah. right? And all your friends are doing nonsense. How are you supposed to like? Th- where does this? Where does it start? You I know believe. What I, mean? I believe it starts with having a hobby that you do that's not just based on your friends being based on just where you're from or them living at in the same floor as you. Yeah. I believe it's more so saying, hey. I play basketball or I play soccer or, yeah. or I have a passion that's outside of Absolutely. just the regular yes. life and basically building your friend group based on that so that you can then look and say, okay, um, I have my, I have a group of friends we met through track and field or we met through basketball. And I feel like if these people are your friends, I feel like it's not, I feel like these are friends that you chose more or less the friends in your neighborhood are people that you grew up with. So I think that's more so family. Like if you're somebody who grew up, grew up in an impoverished area, you have basically the people that you were living around in those areas, these people are more so like your family. I don't even consider those friends. I ah, think friends are okay. more so people that you went That you chose. chose. Yes. Okay, so you you're saying that choose. your environment doesn't directly indicate and tell you this is the type of person that you will become, nor does it tell you who you will befriend, that your friendships are the people that you choose, not so who are you, you are around, is what you're saying. Yes. But that takes a certain amount of intellectual guidance. It just takes curiosity, which uh, I feel like all kids are curious. They are curious, Now, that's All true. kids are curious about, want to try new things, yeah. want to try, but the thing is, they're usually sometimes trying new things in bad ways, trying to do bad things, just because they're looking for a novel stimuli. Whereas I believe that they need to be exposed or, and if they don't have parents or their parents are overwhelmed, they need to expose themselves to this novel stimuli by saying, hey, let me go try to do this. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling bored. Let through me go, activities. Through correct? activities, yeah. Finding through, hobbies yes. and actually enrolling. And yes, okay, there, needs to, ahead, more, there needs to be more activities yeah. there. Let go me ahead. ask you guys something. Yeah. So, like that. So when I think of this, this great advice, I feel like this is something I want to, tell, I want to make sure uh, happens with my kids in the future, inshallah. inshallah. But one thing I'll, I will say is, <coughs> I feel like this is more of something that you that uh, is good advice for like a parent because I don't know. Maybe you guys know, but I don't know if a middle school or high school kid is conscious enough to, you know, take this advice and say, "Hey, I'm." Because in order to take this advice, you need to um, be uh, you need to really be trying to. I guess find yourself and formulate. Your yes, values, your yes, yes, yes. This is, you know, this is all stuff that, cool. You could tell somebody older who's already made the conscious decision to say, "Hey, this is the type of person I want to be. I'm, I need to reflect on it, and I need to make changes in my life in order to do so." I feel like the middle school and high schoolers, they're not that conscious. They're just going to say, "Hey, let me. I like playing ball. I'm just gonna hoop, and whoever I can get cool with, or whoever is cool." Whoever is accepting me, yeah. I'm gonna rock with whatever they're doing. I feel like this is stuff that I guess parents need to. What you guys are saying is things parents need to hear to definitely to, to yes guide their kids to say, hey, you know, honestly, I think uh, this is the responsibility falls on the parents. It always falls on the parents. But that's but that's why it's yeah. hard for the first generation because our parents, like, it's, I guess it's not in their culture to say, hey, we. Um, we're gonna go enroll you in yeah, this program exactly. so you can make the same, the right type of friends, and exactly. do the, you know, and kind of curate your life in, in that their, way. In their yeah. Countries, everybody, nobody was off the pack and allowed, and nobody was on the craziness. You yeah. Know? So it wasn't, you know. So I don't know. I just feel like, for in, when we have kids, inshallah, one day, 
it would be much easier because we understand all the pitfalls and all the different temptations. So we can very easily um, help the kids maneuver to find the best friend group and uh, hopefully that friend mm-hmm. group that they spend eight hours of plus of a day with yeah. um, takes them to, into good and not to bad. But you see, I don't want to put all the blame on the parents because I believe a lot of, like most immigrant parents... Are well-intending. Not only well-intending, but I believe that those immigrant parents are very overwhelmed. They're True. dealing with a lot of stuff. They're working odd jobs. They're doing whatever they so have to do to, to, make, to make ends meet yeah. because they, they came to this country, you know, like down 50 on the scoreboard. Yeah. And yeah. they have to work their way back. And I believe that the thing is, I believe it's more so the community. This is where the community aspect comes in. Because if the parent is overwhelmed working a lot of hours, these kids need to have a community. Mm-hmm. A community that they can go to where there's like-minded people. Yeah. You know, also first-generation. Yes. Yeah, you know, also other first-generation kids that they can have a good time with. And I think that's more so, the wholeness is more so on us. Us first generations to especially as older ones to do a lot of curating for the youth yes for the youth exactly and create these programs for them but but here's the thing though there's a lot of people that that do that though you you will find that people are making you know all this money i don't know any well shoot i've seen organizations around the country that are focused on youth at at risk youth how to get them off the streets how to get them engaged they make a lot of money off of these initiatives Mm -hmm. and yet they themselves don't fully understand what it's like to be first generation some of the leaders in these organizations are not first generation themselves and that's not even white people it's people that were much older right either came directly from the country themselves so our our immigrants themselves right and they um and i can i'm not saying a caveat. I'm not saying it's all at-risk youth programs, but if you're a 50-year-old and you're you're leading a at-youth, I mean, at-risk youth program, and you yourself don't even fully went through but those things. The thing is, their well-intentioned is just that they don't understand. It's on us first generations. Yeah. They were born and raised and grew up in Somalia or in any other first generation, in any other country. Mm-hmm. So the thing is that they have well-intentioned but they don't understand what it means, so they can't relate to the kids. Them even taking their time out to create these organizations. Yeah, any of the and, youth, and any of the any of the youth leaders who wanted to help the youth and were basically community organizers. For me, growing up, I have a huge appreciation for them because they gave me their time. They helped set up basketball events. True. They had up set up set up. Somali Independence Day events yeah. we would go Around and have a here. good time yeah. where they didn't have to do that they have yeah. full time jobs and I only started kind of seeing this when I grew up and I went and got a full time job and I started realizing wow I, I gotta have, I have a full time job and I got to spend time with my family and I have school I said wow this is a lot of stuff so I only as I grew up started understanding more so hey even them even putting any time that they Anytime, put in yeah. was a big blessing but the thing is now that that us first generations are are old, 25 and up, It's and even 21 and up, it's our time to get back to the community and look at our whole community and say, you know what, what, what can we do? Because a kid would rather listen to what I have to say as a young Somali man than, than they'll have to say as a, an older Somali listen gentleman. Listen to one of their uncles yeah, or somebody else in the family. Because I've been through all the stuff that they're going through. Yeah. You know, I've been, I went to college. I was living in a dorm. I, I can talk to them and speak to them yeah. a way that the older Somali individuals can't. Or any other type yeah, in any, any other, other country. Yeah. It could be Ethiopian or whatever. So I have a question, y'all. And this is mostly just coming to both of y'all. Um, and I keep saying I have a question. I have a plenty of questions throughout this podcast. Um, 
how much do you think your identity and the formation of your identity was based off of your need for acceptance? I think it was actually a great, a great amount because my need for acceptance is what had me as a young teenage kid doing all the things that I was doing because I didn't feel that I was American enough, yeah. nor did I feel like I was Somali enough due to me being born and raised in the United States. So it was pretty tough, and it I wanted to be accepted. Who did from you mostly want to get? So in, in real talk, who did you really seek? the acceptance of I seek to uh, I seek the acceptance of the United States the Americans the Americans that I I grew up with because yeah. these are the people that I'm around all the time these are the, yeah. the people that I grew up with yeah. so it's so for I of course I was different but I also you know was a lot like them because I like you said I wanted to be accepted by them yeah. so I, I would do whatever I had to do but you know but I had a certain limit that I would say and this is where the cognitive dissonance and the, the mental warfare comes into play because you'd have to stop at a certain point I would have to point. stop at a certain point so like I'll give and you a story and what do you think helped you like so you're saying that this awareness that you have to stop right yeah that was embedded in you by my, my, mom my and parents. dad yes yeah? yes it had to be my and parents and that that really was our parents that were like okay you can do up to so much and then you have to stop at a certain place and then that's where your, I guess, Somali identity kicks in. And you say, well, this is beyond my scope. This is not where I am. This is not who I am. Yeah. I can't engage in and, this. And even, even if I wanted to transgress those bounds, it yeah. would bring me back very quickly. Yes. So if I would go to a school event and my mom would be calling me immediately if I was at a high school football game yeah. and I would say, some, guys are, some guys are hanging out after yeah. uh, Hoyo and mom. I want to hang no. out with them. That's and she no. said, no, 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 you, you need to get home right now. Uh, just watching the game yeah. was enough. Yeah, what she said, you're lucky I even let you go watch a game. Yes. I'm like, we're just talking about football. Nah. Come on, this is just football, yeah. pig skin. Like, <laughs> that can't just be thrown around. But that's what I'm saying. So I feel like that kind of put me in a, in a you know, kind of, it made me stay within those bounds. But then at the same time, But that was also parents, respect but, that you had, though. And here's a lot of what But my parents still say. gave me the opportunity to still go to these events. Yes. To still. And yes, I feel like that's, that's what point. opened me and, and that's what kind of helped me out. Because I, I had other friends I grew up with who weren't being allowed to go to these events. At all. And the second yeah. that we got to college, they you immediately... Yeah, because they thought in themselves, I, I finally have freedom now. But for so me, I have So that's that I cage bird, that, bird yeah. that you were talking about earlier. Yes. In which you, you never fully felt like you were a bird in a cage. You yeah. felt like you had constraints that you worked within, yes. but you could always just sort of fly and go with the flow within the within boundaries, right? Yeah, it's 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 like it's like somebody walking their dog. Yeah. Like somebody if you have you see somebody in the park with a dog that's yeah. not on a leash, that dog they'll only say, just stay in this area. Whenever they see their dog kind of like going out into the forest, they say they'll start whistling and stuff, yeah. saying, Get get back over here, get here. Get back over here, Roger. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, but still, you still have to let that dog but go the out dog and explore. Also, but the he dog is explore. also trained. And that is what the, I think the point that oftentimes is is. In involved. no way am I comparing myself to a dog. To a dog. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, honestly, there's a lot of training that needs to happen. And one of the things that I think occurs is like all of our parents were in survival mode, right? And, and so when you're in survival mode, you're thinking about how are these kids going to eat? How are these kids going to go to school? How are these, where are they sleeping? How, where, you know, what type of clothes? Like, do they have clothes every season to wear? Transportation. All of the basic needs is what survival mindset parents are on. But then at a certain point, 
you're no longer just trying to survive. Surviving is a period in, in, I think, in life. And if you do what's supposed to be done throughout your survival stage and you take all and you put forth the effort, you should move over to stability. So you're no longer just surviving. You are now stable enough to consider thriving, right? There's levels to these things. And so when you are in a perpetual state of mental survival mode, it's the time that's needed to take care of your kids' psychological growth falls falls to the wayside, right? And not to say, like, people can say in the comments or something that, oh, you know, my parents have always been in survival mode. They've always had these conditions that made it so that they could never really be stabilized. America, if you live in the United States, there is a lot of resources available to bring you from survival to stability. There's plenty of resources available that are public resources to bring you from surviving to stability. Once you are now stable, it, the onus is on the parent, the onus is on the first generation child to move from survival, from stability to thriving. And that is where I think a lot of kids don't recognize how much struggle went into getting from survival to stability, and then they don't even do the work that's needed to be done to start thriving. They yeah. then revert back to survival mode themselves as if they need to do that. Yeah, because, you don't need to do that. Yes, because our parents were surviving so that we could have stability. Yes. And I'll repeat that again. Our parents, as first generation, were surviving in order for us to have stability. So our so you stability... Think our parents, so you're saying that our parents never got to a place where they were stable? I or think, most first generation uh, immigrant parents. I, I think the majority of first generation. Or most immigrant parents. For most immigrant parents, they don't ever get to a place of stability. They look to their kids to be their stability. Ah, uh, good not, point. Uh, not only just as monetary, but also you know achievements, graduating from high school. Yes, uh, that's Going a good to point, college. Right? Well, yeah. Um, Let me just Go ahead. I don't think that just because I think there are there are very low cost or low effort ways to. Um, make sure your kids are on the right path, even if you can't spend that much time with them, right? Uh, even okay, if you so what do you think are some... Education. If, if, yeah. you, if, the, if the parent is educated on the things we were just talking about for the last 30 minutes, then they could go to work 10, 12 hours a day, and but have put in the work a little bit before finding a community and making sure their kids are always left with good companions and like yeah. people of good influences so you know they don't have to um always micromanage them like parents who are already in stable positions um uh, can you know because you know the ones in stable conditions can provide a lot more resources to make sure their kids are on the right path but at the same time you know um i guess making sure the kid is cool with being at like um like the masjid or the being making sure the kid is cool with hanging out with his cousins who are on the right path or making sure his kid is cool with going to some mm. uh, nice soccer team or something that uh, where he can spend time with uh, around people of good influences. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. I don't think you have to be in well-off positions because there's so many people I know who were on the right path but didn't grow up with money. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys know other, other ways? It like low cost or low resource ways. To, the thing uh, is, I would have to, to I would have to disagree with that because I believe that if you have uh, um, an immigrant parent who's struggling financially and time wise due to having to work all these jobs and do all that, or even if we're not talking about time or finance, if we just talk about the mental stress of being an immigrant and 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 being in being impoverished, mm -hmm. I believe that in these type of circumstances. 
it's hard for the parent to under to you know have that energy to say hey you know I'm they're doing the best that they can mm-hmm. and and now I feel like it's more so on on the kid right no on the young the new young Somali parents or young yeah. you know immigrant parents mm-hmm. to say now that we are first generation that we should be able to in our mind understand and see that hey you know we seen all these pitfalls now let's you know brainstorm effective ways to parent that would be you know slightly different mm-hmm. than the ways our parents did it in order because they were in survival mode yeah. our parents it's not that them uh, you know our moms they were in survival mode and that's what had them always working always doing something and i believe that that yeah. now yeah. i believe that now it's for us to change that guard and say let's do it because we since like i said before since our parents were surviving we are now in a place that we're stable and i believe that that stability we have the options to now thrive as holden was saying earlier and if you're thriving and you have technology and the internet i believe that there's so much that you can do in order in, in when it comes down to you know learning things like like people would would see this as you know um you know like people would see this as not a big deal but you can even google how to be a parent online like there's so much you could do that that wasn't available in the how 1980s to be a more efficient <laughs> and productive there's parent. so many books you can read but the but but the thing is most most immigrant parents um, in their culture the it's hard to communicate these type of things effectively to them i mean i can't imagine a first generation or so I have a question real quick saying about that. What do you think were some of the hardest things to talk to your parents about? Growing up, what were some of the things that you thought were super hard to talk to your parents about that really was in those early years where you were really struggling between living between two different identities? I believe that some of the hardest things that I would have to talk to my parents about that I didn't want to and tried my hardest to avoid were like, you know, what I wanted to do in life, as in, like, what I wanted to be. I believe that, you know, as immigrant parents, and most immigrants can relate to this, our parents want us to be, have certain careers. But I believe that t- telling your parents that you have a, um, an interest in something that's not one of those traditional fields, you know, causes a lot of problems in the house and a lot of disappointment that immigrant parents place on, you know, their kids because they want their kids to fulfill the dreams that they didn't have a chance to, you know, fulfill due to them coming from these third world countries that, you know, didn't have stable governments. Mm. And I believe that it's going to hard conversations going to be had, you know, about career choices, about and, career choices. and but then because you can't stifle a, a kid and tell him that him or her, that they have to be in a certain field. I feel like that would, you know, kind of interrupt their creativity you know, mess up their passion. And I believe that if you're not leading a passion in life, I don't think that's no life to lead. Yeah, and I believe I that. But, but, you know, it has to be your passions. It can't be your parents' passions. Your parents can help guide you. They can help help you. But I believe more so it's something that you're going to have to come to grips with. And I know all of us here have had to have those tough conversations and, you know, with our parents about, about this. Well, I, you know what I think, bro? Like, I think with... Even like this conversation and the one we just had before, it all has to do with education. Yeah. If there can be like a first generation person from the same country that grew up here to explain to the parents things like, hey, um, your kid can still be successful, not as an engineer, lawyer, or doctor, or 
something like that, they can still be successful with XYZ major and get a job at XYZ business or XYZ consulting firm. Just to kind of help break down the rigid um, ideas that they have about what it means to be successful in America, you know. And also, even from the last um, conversation we're having, having somebody who they trust, like a first generation who's successful, who they can trust, tell the parents, like, hey, Mm -hmm. you know what? These are the best ways to um, help your kids avoid um, bad influences, you know? This place, that place, this place, that. I feel like they just need someone to... Yeah, they the need, parents yeah. need the they parents, need a lot more information. The parents need consulting. Consulting. And, exactly. and who and who who's gonna exactly. consult them? Us. We're the only. Yeah. Yes. We there's nobody the else. That's why our this first generation is the most important generation. Yeah. Because we are the ones who are basically going to be able to oh. cons- consult exactly. all these parents, and also when we become parents, exactly. help create these communities. It's like when What's they go to the, a doctor and there's a um, there's an advocate who basically says, "Yo." I'm going to explain to you exactly what the doctor means. He's speaking this foreign language to you and all the stuff that you yeah. don't understand. I'm going to ex- break it down in simple terms and tell you step-by-step uh, step what you need to do. Mm. It's, it's like that. Continue, bro. Well, um, you know, that's a really good point about education. Um, I, I want to circle back around to something about friends. Um, to be honest with you, making friends is not easy for anybody, right? It's, it's a hard yep. thing. When you're growing up, um, and you're not even fully sure of yourself, and your confidence is like on on tilt, and you're kind of trying to figure out who you are, what you're about, and really your confidence is shot on an everyday basis. Making friends is, is not easy. I think you all can attest to that. Um, and it's even harder when you're trying to formulate friendships within those boundaries that we spoke about. Like, I can say verbatim, I was never allowed to go to sleepovers, period. Right. Yep. Um, that was a big thing. Me like, too. yeah. And e- you know this. And FYI, this is my brother in this podcast. So neither one of us, he, the boy and, and, and me, the girl, we were neither allowed. Neither one of us were allowed to go to anybody's house and sleep over growing up. And so one of the things that I've been littered to sleep over. Huh? I was getting lit at the sleepover. You were? But like, one of the things that I, I think uh, I want to circle back around to is confidence, confidence building as a first generation anything. And particularly we're speaking right now about first generation East Africans and building your confidence into who you are. At every turn, people are trying to bring you down. If you don't drink alcohol, you have peer pressure that's around saying, oh, you should come and get lit with us. You should drink. It's no biggie. Even though it's against your faith and it's not something that's um, prevalent within your culture, right? Um, You have, uh, when it comes to confidence, people will say, oh, you got to just be the, the loudest, the most ignorant guy in the room in order to appear confident. And that's what the, 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 the thing is currently, right? And so confidence and the formation of confidence, how do you think you've built your confidence over the years? What were the key components in confidence building for you? And, and really, do you think that your dual identity and you walking those paths helped build your confidence or hindered your confidence? So I believe what helped me build my confidence was I would have to give a large, you know, significant contribution to my parents because they always told me that I was different. So if I try to come and tell them, I just want to do what all my classmates are doing, they'll tell me, no, you're Somali, you're different, you know. Or if I told my dad, 
hey, uh, my teacher said that I've, I, I failed this exam and that I'm just not smart and that like I, I need to be you know removed from this math class. He would tell me, no, no, you're not. Don't listen to them. You're not like all of them. You're you know you come from a good family. You're smart. You know, and I feel like that helped me a lot. Helped me to you know just believe it because I feel like if your parents are telling you that you're smart, I feel like these are the people who brought you into this world. I feel like that gives you the utmost confidence. And and you as my sister or like my other brothers telling me that I can do it, I, I believe that helped me a lot. And that that built my confidence greatly. And I also believe what what else built my confidence is a dual identity. Because even if I didn't believe what my parents were saying, I always felt like I was somebody who wasn't your average person. Yeah. So I, I kind of accepted my how my differences from the society and how I was different from people. I accepted that. And that and, was like something that yes, built your confidence yes. that you felt Back like... Back when it wasn't cool to be different. Yeah. Because I come from the era where they would say, hey, you know, uh, you're an African booty scratcher. <laughs> I come from that era. I don't come from... <laughs> The era of, hey, it's cool to listen to Afro beats. And, yeah. and do, I don't come from that era. I come from the era, if you're not wearing some Jordans and you're not wearing Sean John and, and Rockaway <laughs> and, 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 and a 4XL t-shirt. Two 4XL yeah, t-shirts on top of each yeah, other. If you're not wearing any of that, then you're you're not cool at all. Like, not cool. It's not cool to be different. Nowadays, you know, you see people just walking outside and, uh, you know, you see people in downtown walking around with African dress. Yeah, like it's it's, it's, it's yeah. With like you it's see a white statement. girls wearing African prints. Yeah, like, like, like talk about cultural appropriation, but that's a whole nother topic. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you know I come from that era, so I, I was able to understand. Hey man, I use my differences and how I stood out, and I said, hey, you know, that's my power. That's my power. My curly hair, all of that. That's who I am, you know, if I, if and I, pride. yeah, if, yeah, it's my pride, you know, it's my pride. If I, if I, if I have a beard that yeah. I'm Muslim, that's my pride. I'm not like y'all. Yes. And that, and, and really that it, it could go two ways. Like you said, I'm not like y'all could be like, Oh my God, I'm not like y'all. I'm like, I need to be like you. Let me go kiss your, you know, behind. Yeah. But it's so hard. So what do you think? Do your dual identity, how much of it do you think influenced the building of your culture? I mean, building of your uh, confidence? Do you think at any points you being Ethiopian-American made you less confident in any way? And also for you, Amde, it's even more particular because you have a big community here yeah. in the DNV, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas in me and Liban don't. Mm -hmm. So how much do you think that has helped shape who you are today? For me, I feel like since I grew up in an area with a lot of Africans and uh, in general, first generation Africans. Mm -hmm. It was cool. Like we just play soccer. We know what's. We kind of have an understanding of a lot of things. We're not gonna make fun of each other for not having Jordans or whatever all the time, you know. So yeah, I mean, for me, most of the things Liban said, I could say um, I feel the same way. You know, my parents always. You know, one thing, I don't know if you guys know, is Ethiopians, they have a, a lot of pride. It might be a little too much at times. <laughs> but, um, you know, they're always, they're always trying to build you up. And yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree with everything we've been saying. I would say I feel the same. But one thing I will say, a little different perspective, is when I, in my life, when I became a lot more confident, is when I started to reflect on who I am and what I believe. And I started to become more conscious about my actions, mm -hmm. my belief system, um, 
what I stand for, what I'm willing to do, what I'm not willing to do. And when do you and, think that happened yeah, to that you, Andre? That didn't come till college. Yeah. When I started to meet other free thinkers or people who were kind of putting me on to, you know, I don't know, I just feel like uh, in college in general, that's when you are, you should be a little more reflective. I mean, you're by yourself. A lot of times you're in your dorm. A lot of times you don't have anyone there, so you have to, you can become a whole new person. Some people, they join organizations and they become completely different people. Sometimes it's for the better, sometimes for the worse. But when I sat down and figured all this stuff out for who I am and what I want to be and what I truly believe, that's when I became a lot more confident because if someone, uh, if it was cool to do X, Y, Z, and I know I didn't stand for it, and I, I wasn't as pressured or I didn't have that urge to do it as I may have back in the day when I was just a youngin in, in high school or middle mm. school or something mm. like that. Because I was like, I know who I am, and I believe that this is right, and that's cool enough for me. And so, you know, I think it has to, every person, once they're in college or once they're old enough to be conscious, they need to reflect and they need to make a conscious decision of who they are, who what they, they want stand to be, for, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. who they want to be, and also um, consistently reflect. Yes. You know, because a lot of people they're running away from that. They don't want to look look back at those crazy ass decisions that they made the, the weekend before at the party or uh, a couple weeks ago when yeah. they had that falling out with their friend group. They don't want to break down. Yo, w- let me take responsibility for my actions. What did I do wrong? Is this who I want to be? Do I have any um, characteristics that I I can work on? If you have that, if you grow and at least try, make an attempt yeah. to, to be reflective and try to um, work on yourself like that at an earlier age, like in college instead of in your 30s, most people yeah. I think do it, or maybe never. Never. Then, I yeah. think that's often the yeah. t- case then, where that reflection never happens. Exactly. Then, then I think you'll be straight in life. But you need humility and you need someone to kind of um, urge you or put you on to this. Because I had someone kind of telling me, but I never really thought about this. You know, this whole thing. I, just, mm. I would just live a life, having fun, going to play basketball, going to the um, hoop with my boy, going to have a good time with my boy, <laughs> going to the, uh, the mm. dining hall. We weren't thinking too consciously, going to class, that's it. But you need someone to put you on, mm-hmm. you need to be humble enough to, humble enough and kind and, of confident enough to, to, to criticize yourself. I mean, mm. some people, they, they have such low confidence that they can't even criticize themselves because, you know, they're like, it's in denial because yeah. I don't know why. But, but you need, like you said, but you need to go to college in order to meet those free thinkers yeah. that are also criticizing themselves who are yeah. also being self-reflective. Then in your mind, you'll think, hey, um, these this person's able to do it. It's not that bad. I can go back and look back and you know at what I've what I've been doing or yeah. the mm-hmm. life I'm leading right. living. I feel like every person should always audit themselves. Mm-hmm. I believe that like there should be like many times in a year where one just says, you know what, I'm going to spend the next few hours or even the next day, you know, this whole afternoon, this mm-hmm. evening, just auditing and looking back at my life and saying, you know what, let me see, like, what's been going on because it's so easy to be on autopilot yeah. doing whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so easy. Yeah. Wake up at 35 just a bum. A bum, like yeah. A, it, but it's not, not... Maybe not financially, maybe not other aspects, but but you may have the maturity level of somebody 10, 10 20 years below you. Oh, yes. Honestly, building confidence is one of the hardest things as a first generation female that is really trying to see who the hell you are 
in America, right? Because I'm not Somali enough, I'm not black enough, I'm not American enough, I'm not feminine enough, I'm not this enough. Women are criticized from here to California, literally, for every aspect of who they are. And, and when you are under constant pressure and scrutiny from your physical appearance to if you actually take on an intellectual journey, right, where you're like, who are you? Like when you're in these science classes and you're the only black female, the only salt immigrant first generation in some of these classes, they're like, who are you? Like, how dare you come into this class with those type of vibes that you might catch? Yeah. Um one of the things that I've learned, honestly, is really what helps is like just being self-aware and conscious and taking the time to really be reflective. How did you, get, how did you start becoming like that? You know, how I became like that, honestly, is a lot of it had to do with social isolation. I'm not even going to front. Like, I spent a lot of time socially isolated. And some of it was, like my brother said earlier, the constructs within the, the boundaries that I lived in. Um, growing up, there was just, just things I couldn't do. And I accepted them. That's the interesting thing. There's a lot of people who really do not accept the boundaries at all. And so they go through life just going like a million miles per hour against every single thing that's ever been told to them by anybody that cares and loves for them, you know, um, uh, that cares and loves them. So what I found, honestly, is my love of self and how much I truly love myself and the love that I have for my parents and for the people that raised me, there was just things that I could not do. And so when I found that these are things that absolutely, it's really honestly to keep it 100, I felt like a lot of that stuff was beneath me. And when I felt like it's beneath you, that it's not above, you know, it's not something I strive to do, it's beneath me, then I was like, all right, this is beneath me. This ain't nothing that I'm interested in. And also... Um, that led me to being somewhat socially isolated because unlike y'all, a lot of girls don't have hobbies. I'm going to keep it 100 with you. It's rare that a girl is playing ball or playing yeah. soccer or attending anything. Either they're on the curve doing BS or they're socially isolated. There's some that actually do have hobbies, but it takes time to develop these hobbies as women because it's not sports oriented. Um, and so... That's a completely different. I have so many. Yeah, questions. there's so many questions about that. So it, it really like why girls are often pressed over guys is because they ain't got nothing else to do. Yeah. Let's keep it like totally honest. Yeah. Like when you are focused on yourself, you're focused on your development, you're focused on your growth. You have hobbies. You will meet amazing women and guys through these endeavors. But if you ain't doing nothing, you're not about nothing, how are you ever going to meet anybody of substance? How are you going to build these circles? You're not playing soccer or basketball or track. You know what I mean? So women have it way harder than men when it comes to finding and, good and friends. And that's, that's what can lead them uh, into accepting peer pressure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because like I was saying, it was easy for me to find these hobbies yeah. that men do, like playing basketball yeah. and doing all that. But, you know, that kind of gave me the time where, you know, I was away. You know, I, that kind of like shielded me from the BS. Yeah. Because I'm just like, if I'm playing basketball six hours a day. What time, you know, as a when kid? When were you playing six hours? A lot of my life. <laughs> <laughs> like, there are a lot of girls who I think grew up in, with the right influences at home, and they thought that all the BS was beneath them at school, so they kind of ended up in a similar um, social isolation. But what I want to ask you is, how did you make that productive? How did you make that productive to the point where you're so successful in everything? You know, that's a very good question. Lone, you know, yeah. Being lonely, loneliness can can really do a couple of things. Yeah. For some people, loneliness is debilitating. 
where they literally cannot do anything. They live in a sulking state. Um, and then for other people, loneliness taps into optimism, where they're saying, if I do this and this and this and I elevate my life, I will attract the right people along the way because I'm a better person and I do mm-hmm. dope things okay. and I'm cool as all, mm-hmm. all whatever. You know what I mean? So when I am in a position where I'm glowing up, where I'm powerful, mm-hmm. I will by virtue be meeting people that are in alignment with my wavelength. You know what I mean? I think so. I, I, yeah, isolation really. And I'm, when was, I say, was it natural for you to go yeah. to that go that mindset? Was it just natural? I think for me, some that's of it... That's a perfect mindset. I don't know how you <laughs> got to that. Uh, I think... That's not what most... I don't think, I don't think that's... Do. I don't think a lot of people think like yeah. that way. I think a lot of people do a lot of self-destruction yeah. along the path to actualizing themselves. Some of them continue on that self-destruction for the rest of their lives um, while others catch themselves. Honestly, I think a lot of it is spiritual for me. Um, I have always believed that God... Allah is watching me at all times and wants the best for me. And I'm not trying to go really, you know, too deep into that. But always knowing at the back of my mind that my life is a combination of my free will choices and my destiny. And it's a combination of the two. My entire life, up until the moment that I die, I have free choice and I have destiny. And as long as I put forth my concerned and best effort in terms of making the best choices within the constraints of my free will, then my destiny will be beautiful. I will have the things that I've always envisioned or better because Allah is the best of planners. But when you spend much of your life in a hopeless state, Right where you say my social isolation is some kind of punishment, that the restrictions that my parents are giving me is so that I'm not as cool or not as hip or I don't have these friends or, you know, you live in a hopeless state, I mean, you'll fall into anything, including drugs, including alcohol, including uh, premarital affairs, including anything. And then ultimately depression and just, you know. And and, and, and so I, I think that parents... Yes, don't isolate your girls to the point where they lose their minds, right? If there's parents that are listeners. Like, I, when I say I was socially isolated, I could go to the movies. I, I chose to isolate myself from the nonsense. Yeah. There's not a lot of girls on the same wave as you, right? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And honestly, I think there needs to be more conversations like this one. 